Well, let me invite you to reach for your Bibles, if you would, and open with us to Luke chapter 7, the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat in front of you close by there, and you can join in um, opening to Luke chapter 7. We've been studying this Gospel for many months. This morning we arrive in verse 36, and if you'll follow along, I'm going to set this scene before us by reading from verse 36 all the way to the end of the chapter. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner." And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Three points this morning that I'm going to use to outline this story. This dinner party that is now etched in human history. There are a lot of dinner parties that go on. You've hosted dinner parties. I've hosted dinner parties. Whether it's a few people or a big group, dinner parties. You you plan them. You think through the details. You want it, it could be said, you, you want it to be a memorable occasion. And of course, as good a job as you did, or as you have done, it probably really wasn't that memorable. It goes the way of dinner parties. There's always another one. 
And that one takes its place in your mind and your party is forgotten. But not so here. This dinner party is a party to remember. God chose to inspire Luke to write it down. The other gospels, gospel writers didn't write it down. Only Luke wrote it down. God inspired Luke to write it down for his purposes. And then, by that, this party becomes etched in human history. Here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about this meal and this party on this night. But I almost forgot the outline. I was going to give you the outline. Three simple points. I knew I'd get back to it eventually because it's my outline. Point number one, the Pharisee. Point number two, the sinner. Point number three, the Savior. The Pharisee, the sinner, the Savior. So, simple enough, let's meet first the Pharisee. Luke wants us to see him. In fact, three times in the first two verses, 36 and verse 37... He wants us to see the Pharisee. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees. Verse 36, the Pharisee's house. Verse 37, the Pharisee's house. It's also there in verse 39, the Pharisee who had invited Jesus. Now in verse 40, Luke changes as Jesus speaks. And from then on, the man's referred to as Simon. Luke could have begun his story that way, right? Luke could have said, now a man named Simon was requesting Jesus to dine with him. But that's not what Luke said. He doesn't start that way. So I think it's important to note the way he started. This is, by the way, just basic biblical exposition. How you're supposed to read your Bible. What does it say? That's where we start. That's the heart of it. Biblical exposition is the pursuit of what the text says. And we move on from that, of course, but you can't begin anywhere other than what does it say? And then when you look at what it says, you you start to dig it out a bit and you look for things like phrases that are repeated or words that are repeated because suddenly you realize that what it says is what it says and this is the point of what it says. So key words and phrases are repeated and here it's an easy one, Pharisee. Pharisee is a key word in this text at the beginning. So we should ask, who is a Pharisee? God wants us to make a note that this is a Pharisee. And it's not the first time we've met a Pharisee in Luke's gospel. They've been in the story of Jesus really from the very beginning. He's he's always dogged by these Pharisees. And so we're not going to dwell a lot on it, but Luke points it out. So let's point it out. The Pharisees are the religious people. Really, they're the uber-religious folk. They were so religious that they become a class unto themselves of the religious elite. They are the leaders of religion in Jesus' day. They are the leaders of this new Judaism, which isn't at all the Judaism that God would have had His people participating in. They have authority in Jesus' day. They have authority granted to them by Rome. And they have authority granted to them by the people. But you should realize they have no authority granted to them by God. 
When you end the account of the Old Testament and the story of God's work in redemption that has as its central character the people of Israel, God's people, you won't find any Pharisees. They weren't in the order of uh, organization or structure, either for worship or for civic affairs or for government. But then we open our New Testament and there they are. Well, they rose to power during the intertestamental period. That's they, they showed up, and they've been elevated now, and they have a position of authority, again, granted by Rome, granted by the people, but God never put them there. They were, some would say, fairly ordinary people. We tend to think of them as unusual and odd, but really in their day, they wouldn't have been marked out as unusual or odd, except they imagined themselves to be entirely other than ordinary. That, 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 you would pick up on that if you met them. They would look like an ordinary person, but they had an air of a person who thought they were anything but ordinary. They were moral. They were moral people. And that's a good thing as far as it goes, but we realize, right, that that doesn't go very far. When we think of moral people, when they thought of themselves as moral, they don't mean moral in relation to God. They don't mean moral in relation to holiness and God's commands and laws, because no one is that. Everybody falls short of that, falling short just a little bit, James would say, means you fell short of all of it. No, they're moral because in relation to other people, they appear to be superior. That's what moral people really are. They, they imagine themselves superior to everybody else in the area of morality. So ask anybody in Jesus' day, and they would all tell you, the Pharisees are the moral people. The Pharisees are the fastidious in their disciplines sort of people. They work hard to avoid sin, at least any outward sin. Any sin that could be measured or compared. And thereby, if you actually saw their heart and could measure it, their gig would be up. And you'd see that they really weren't moral at all. One of the other distinctions about the Pharisees is they were separatists. They separated from anyone or anything that they had determined to be a compromise to their morality, a threat, maybe, to their morality. You see, for the Pharisee, the problem is always out there. It was never in here. And so they would just separate from anything out there that they thought might somehow taint them. C.S. Lewis refers to them as nice men lost in their niceness. That's a good picture of them. Lewis wasn't really, though, referring directly to the Pharisees of Jesus' day when he said that. No, he was referring to the Pharisees of his day when he said that. Nice men lost in their niceness. The church, it has to be noted, whether it be Lewis's day or our own, will always have their share of Pharisees. Every congregation has them. They're the judgmental ones. They're the scrutinizers. They're the ones who will criticize anything and everything. And they will keep their distance from sinners. They will always keep their distance from sinners. And then, and here's the real mark. They won't just keep their distance from sinners, having no interest in a relationship with sinners, quickly judging sinners to be such. They won't just do that. 
they'll distance themselves from anybody who doesn't distance themselves from sinners. They are quick to judge the sinner and just as quick to judge the Christian who has any relationship toward a sinner. We call that not just separation, but secondary separation. I will separate from sinners and I'll separate from you if you don't. These are the Pharisees and they're still around today. But here in our story, the Pharisee has decided to invite Jesus to his house. We don't know his motivation, but we do or will learn and understand his lack of sincerity. He seems to lack a bit of sincerity. For all his reputed qualities, he's a pitiful host. We learn that from the story. But at least he made an attempt. And we should maybe give him credit for that. He sent the invitation to Jesus, the text says. And Jesus accepted. Now, it might have been that the invitation itself was a test. Again, we don't know for sure, but we know for sure that Jesus had received other invitations to other parties that the Pharisees would never go to. In fact, you could just turn over a page, maybe two, to Luke chapter 5 and be reminded there was a party there. Uh, Luke chapter 5 and verse 29 And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd, a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes saw that and began to grumble at his disciples, saying, what do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So this may have been a test. He was invited to eat with sinners, and he came. Let's see what he'll do when he's invited to eat with me. And I think perhaps he thought in his mind he won't come. And that'll prove it, right? That would, that would settle it. But he did come. He eats with those people. I wonder if he'll eat with my people. Well, he came. The request was there in verse 36. And it says that Jesus entered the house. Now, we might note, just in passing a bit, how Luke describes this. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined. Your Bible may have added there, as my Bible did in italics, reclined at the table. Your Bible could possibly say, some English translations say, sat down to meet, M-E-A-T. Reclined at table, without an article. All of that translating is done to help us try to understand a word that we don't really have an equivalent to. It's just one word that's all is there. Katakino, or in this case, in the tense, katakine. What does it mean? It means recline. Literally, it means to lay. It's most often used in the New Testament to describe somebody lying down, like a sick person, who is katakine, lying. But Paul uses the word when he's writing to the Corinthians and talks about dining in an idol's temple, that word dining. So it is a word that that identifies a meal at a table But it's the posture of how they ate. They are reclined. Jesus didn't go there to take a nap. He went there to eat. And he sits down at a table to eat, we presume, meat. And you see all of that in your various English translations to try to make the picture clear to us at what he was doing. This is how they ate. They reclined at a table. They would sit on one side and reach then to the table, their feet extending away from the table. All right? So seated on one side, feet away from the table. I was taught as a kid, keep your feet off the table. Why? 
Well, because it's icky. And there's a little bit of that in this tradition here. You keep your feet away from the table. They also believed it helped in digestion to eat on your side. It might help with weight loss. I don't know. I'm, I'm game to try if you want to join me. We'll, do, we'll all do the reclining diet. I don't think it'll work out. All right, so that's the scene. You get the scene? And that's our first point, the Pharisee. Second point, the sinner. Verse 37, there was a woman in the city, a sinner. That's it, really. That's all that's there. Like the Pharisee, Luke wants us to see this woman. God wants us to see this woman, and what He wants us to see is a sinner. It's a sinner. That's the point. That will be the point later when the sinner's sins are forgiven. Acknowledged. And it'll be the point later when it is acknowledged that the sinner's faith has saved the sinner. This woman is a sinner. So if I asked you, who is this woman? What's the answer? The answer is a sinner. Oh, no, I mean, who is this woman? Well, the answer is, and somebody shouts out, she's a prostitute. Well, your Bible might even make that hint because one English translation actually doesn't say a woman in the city. It says a woman of the city. But that really isn't the point. This idea that she's a prostitute comes from mixed up exegesis. Take your Bible and just shake it all up and make it say what you think it maybe should say. I want to show you how that works in this case, in this scene, how this mix-up happens and, and it moves us away from what it actually says. So keep your mark there in Luke 7 and find Matthew chapter 26. We have a very, very similar scene. Matthew chapter 26. And look for verse 6. If you have a study Bible, it's going to say something like the precious ointment. Now, here's what Matthew writes. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, why this waste? Now, the Bible reader, just casually reading their Bible, say, well, that's the same story. But it isn't the same story. In fact, it obviously isn't the same story. It's just clear as day if you slow down and read it. It is a dinner party, and the man's name is Simon. The host is Simon. There's perfume there. There's an alabaster vial there. All of that is true. But this is recorded by Matthew chronologically in the life of Jesus just before the last week in execution on the cross. This Simon here is leper. He's not Simon the Pharisee, Simon the leper. This meal is in Bethany. The meal in Luke is in the north of Galilee. Bethany's just outside of Jerusalem, south of the Sea of Galilee. It's a meal. There's a man there named Simon, and there's a costly perfume. But that doesn't tell you it's the same story. I mean, you could just take your New Testament, just your Gospels, and you could meet Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot, Another one of the disciples, Simon the Tanner, Simon the father of Judas, Simon of Cyrene, Simon the leper, and of course, 
Simon the Pharisee. So just because it says Simon doesn't mean it's talking about the same scene. In fact, if you read it, it's a different time, it's a different place, it has different characters, and there's a completely different point being made. But folks take these accounts and mish them all together. John and Mark both record the same account that Matthew records. It's obvious because it's same time, same place, same people. But when John records it in John chapter 12, we're not going to turn there. But it's the same account as Matthew's account that we're looking at there. And there the woman in Matthew's account with the expensive oil, we get her name. In John's account, he tells us it's actually Mary who is Martha's sister, both of them being the sisters of Lazarus. Now, pretty quickly, if you just slow down a little, you can rule out that this woman in Luke is not that woman. So you can pretty quickly rule out that this woman is not Mary, at least not that Mary. Because that Mary, the mother of Martha, had her faults, but she's never identified as a sinner of repute a sinner in the city or a sinner of the city, a sinner that Simon recognizes and likely all his, all his guests recognized. But the Bible skimmers aren't finished. They make the leap that it can't be that Mary, but it has to be some Mary, so it must be Mary, the prostitute, Mary Magdalene. Well, perhaps you'd be interested to know, and you'll learn in a few weeks, because we'll meet Mary Magdalene in the very next chapter, that she is not a prostitute. Nowhere in the Bible is Mary Magdalene indicated to be a prostitute. She is demon-possessed, and Jesus cast those demons out of her. But the Hollywood version gets involved in this stuff, and they spin all this stuff, and they just goo it all together. And suddenly, the account that we're reading, which is a very significant account, and I hope to get to that point when I'm finished making this point, gets completely lost. And now you can tell we're in the weeds, right? This woman must be Mary Magdalene the prostitute. What? If it was Mary Magdalene, well, Luke would introduce her. He knows who she is. He's going to introduce her in the next chapter. And in the next chapter, he doesn't say, you know, the woman in chapter 7. No, because it's not the same woman. Why does that happen? Let me tell you why it happens. Listen to me. We'll make you mad. You'll get over it in just a few seconds. It happens because people don't read their Bibles. They'd rather read a version of their Bible in some novel or allegory or television show or movie. They prefer to read what they want to read in the Bible. They prefer to have people tell them a version that, well, just makes them feel a little different than this version makes them feel. It was the Da Vinci Code that introduced us to Mary Magdalene, the prostitute, who had an affair with Jesus and had some kids. And I could go on with the Passion of the Christ or the current popular The Chosen. It's just Bible mushed together. Because somehow this doesn't do it for us anymore. Somehow this, the inspired version of the actual events that has the power to save us, is insufficient for us. I'm finished. I don't care what you watch. I don't particularly care what you read. But let me tell you something. The book is better 
this book is better. If you don't think it's better, so this woman, whose name we don't know, who is not necessarily a prostitute, though she may be, but we don't know that. She certainly isn't Mary, the sister of Martha. She's a woman without a name, but she is not a woman without an identity. She's a sinner. She is known to be a sinner. And it could be any sin. Because the Pharisees could identify any sin and anybody as a sinner. She lives in that city. Whether your Bible says in that city or of that city, it makes the point that she was known. A sinner known to the people. But what she does... It's incredibly dramatic. She learned that Jesus going to this dinner at this Pharisee's house. And so she goes. There's no indication that she was invited, but that's really not unusual, at least not in that day. Open houses, open table. It might have happened even out in the courtyard. That's not uncommon. She just went. And standing behind Jesus at his feet, right? That's how they were seated, feet away from the table. She walks up behind him and she starts weeping. Weeping profusely. Alistair Begg, preaching on this text, says, runny nose crying. How do you know? Because Luke tells us. She weeps and the tears fall on Jesus' feet. Enough that she uses those tears to wipe his feet. His feet incidentally, or maybe not incidentally, which should have been washed already by the host's servants, but they weren't. That'll come out in the story. But these tears fall, and the dust on Jesus' feet would begin to form little rivers of mud. And she doesn't have a towel. And the only thing she can think of apparently is to let her hair down and wipe his feet. Let her hair down. I can't work out every detail of this, but you just got to know all of this is shocking in Jesus' day. No woman ever was seen in public with her hair down. And she brought this perfume with her. She had a plan. It's described in verse 37 as an alabaster vial of perfume. A perfumed ointment to be precise. It's not oil. Oil should have been used when Jesus came in. More on that in just a second. To anoint the guest head or the hair. It's just a sign of hospitality. No, this is costly perfume ordinarily in a sealed vial. The only way to get to the the ointment inside is to break the top off. Extremely expensive. Perhaps worn as as an attachment to a rope around her neck or a chain. Be very common in that day. You see something similar to that today with folks that wear uh, essential 
oils around their neck. They're typically perfumed. This is a very expensive container. This is valuable. Some have suggested it could have been a dowry. We don't know that. But she had a plan to use that now. But when she got there, she was overwhelmed by it all. When she actually got to his feet, she just wept. But then she kisses his feet and she breaks open that little vial and she anoints his feet with that costly perfume. Verse 39, Simon sees it. Look how Luke says it. He saw this. He didn't just see her. He saw this. And every detail of it would have stung him. Because first he saw her. Wait a minute. I didn't give him a servant. And then he saw the tears. But wait a minute. I didn't give him any water to wash his feet. And then the hair, but wait, again, no servant, no water, no towel. And the anointing, I I didn't even give him the common greeting of some olive oil on his head when he arrived. And the kiss, the common Middle Eastern greeting, a kiss on one cheek or both. He saw this. And perhaps must have thought, I invited Jesus, but I never actually welcomed him. He saw all of that, every detail of it. And then he ignores it. A sting so quickly passed over as perhaps many stings have been passed over in a man's life when he thinks he has nothing wrong with him. Or certainly by comparison, can't have anything wrong with him like she has wrong with her. This woman is a sinner. That's what he drills down on. I may have forgotten some things in my planning, but at least I'm not a sinner like her. You see, he's not just reaching conclusions about the woman. He's reaching conclusions about Jesus. Look look what it says. If this man were a prophet... Which, by the way, just takes you right up in the same chapter, right there in Luke 7, when Jesus raised that man from the dead in verse 16. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying what? A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people, and this is the news that began to spread. Well, Simon looks at Jesus and says, you know what? This guy is not a prophet. You can say what you want to say. He is not a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he would know who and he would know what sort of person this woman is. This woman touching him, he said. A sinner, he said. So that's the Pharisee. 
And that's the sinner. Which takes us to my third point. The Savior. Verse 40, Jesus now speaks. Simon, I have something to say to you. But wait, no, go back, read it again. Jesus answered him. Answered him. He hadn't said anything. Luke is clear. He just said it to himself. He was just thinking all of this stuff. He wasn't saying all of those things. And Jesus, who knows his heart, like he knows all men's hearts, Jesus, the man in the room who is also God in the room, knew what Simon said to himself. I just wrote this in my notes just to say this to you. Jesus knows. The Savior knows. And then he tells a quick story. A debt is owed. 500 denarii, that's a day's wage. 500 days wage is owed to a man. That's a year and a half or so. And then there's another man who owns, owes 50 days wage. Neither of those are small sums. But both of them, the point in the story, both of them more than the men could pay. They were both unable to pay. They owed a debt they could not pay, a debt unpayable. And what happens is this man who is owed the money forgives it. Forgives it. He just says that. Both of them forgiven. And so then Jesus asks Simon, So Simon, which one of them will love him more, the man who forgave their unpayable debt? So notice it's important, forgiveness and a reaction to forgiveness. Forgiveness and love in response to forgiveness. That's the story. Which one will love more? Simon? Well, I think by now Simon knows he's trapped. He's a pretty smart guy. To be a Pharisee, this is not going well. And so his response, his first two words, I suppose, I suppose, really? Simon, this is not hard. (laughs) Which one will love more? Now, Jesus didn't do that, but it's kind of implied there with, uh, I suppose. I suppose the one whom he forgave more. That's right, Simon. You got it right. Jesus turning toward the woman. This is the first time in the account that he acknowledges her. She has not spoken a word. Nor has a word been spoken to her. Turning to the woman and speaking to Simon. Do you see this woman? Now, just so we can always be reminded, Jesus doesn't ask questions so that he can learn the answer. Jesus asks questions so the one who he asked the question has to have that question rattling around in their head. 
And then after that, the answer to the question rattling around in their head. It's a very effective teaching tool, by the way. Do you see this woman? Well, of course he saw her. He saw her. He judged her. He was shocked by her. He identified her with her sin and then judged Jesus for allowing her to touch him. He had seen all of that, but that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not the point of the question or the answer that's going to rattle in Simon's head. Do you see this woman? Simon, do you see her? And the answer isn't, well, duh. Of course I see her. No, the answer that Jesus is reaching for, the answer that Simon has to confront is, no, I refuse to see her. I refuse to know her or to identify her with anything other than her sin. I will not see her any other way. I can't see who she is because I can't see past who she was. And Jesus is saying by asking, Simon, that's your problem. You can't see people. You just judge people. You don't see people. You just look down on people. You don't see people for who they are or what they might be. Or in this case, what I've made of them. You only see their sin. And you see that so you can imagine yourself better than that. And Jesus is saying, Simon, look at her. See her. And see her do what you didn't do. She washed my feet with tears. She kissed my feet. You didn't even greet me. She anointed my feet, and Simon, you didn't even grant me the common respect of a touch of oil on my head when I got here. Simon, you don't see her, and you don't see me either. That's the problem. That's always the problem with the Pharisee. Now, I have to hurry, but this is where the story, listen, this is where the story by the one not paying attention, by the one who was reading this this morning who might themselves be a Pharisee, this is where the story can get into a ditch. Look what Jesus said there in verse 47. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now you don't have to read very many commentaries or listen to very many sermons on this text to see the propensity of professing Christians to be legalists, to be Pharisees, to be self-righteous, works-oriented Christians. 
They read this and they say that what this says is that Jesus, is, Jesus said that the woman's sins are forgiven because of her lavish love for him. That's what they read. Love a lot, guess what? Be forgiven a lot. Well, with all respect, if that's how you read this, you aren't paying attention. You, you haven't read it. First of all, you haven't read your Bible just generally because no one's sins will ever be forgiven because of anything that person does. Ever. Never. Little love, lot of love, uber love ain't going to work. No one's sins have ever been forgiven because of what you do. It will never happen. It has never happened. Secondly, Jesus is making the point that he's making by making the point of the story that he told the way he told the story that points to the point that he's making. In other words, it's all right here in the text. You don't even have to have a general knowledge of the rest of your Bible to not arrive at the wrong conclusion. Notice again the debtors. Or the ones who owed the debt. What did Jesus say? Forgiven. Not because of anything they did. Forgiven just because of the one who forgave them. Then they reacted to that forgiveness with a measured love to which Jesus says, how would you measure that love? Well, you would measure it based on the forgiveness they had been given without anything on their part. It's right there. It's clear as day. Forgiven, response to forgiveness. Forgiven, and love for the one who forgave you. And it's also right here in this verse that we're looking at. It's right there in the tense of the verb, which I understand we don't all dig into and don't take the time to. And it's part of why I'm standing here telling us that if you dig into it, as I have, you will find the tense of the verb have been forgiven. Her sins have been forgiven. That's past perfect were forgiven in the past and continually are forgiven. That's the tense of the Greek verb. Typically just called the perfect tense. And so that nobody misses the point and reaches the wrong conclusion that somehow her love produced her forgiveness. Then we have verse 50. Which reads, Your lavish act of courageous love has saved you. Not. It does not say that. What it says is, Your faith has saved you. Why? Because that's the only way anybody can be saved. It's the only way anybody can be saved and have their sins forgiven. It's by faith that you are saved. I am the Savior and your trust in me will save you. And in this woman's case, I am the Savior and your trust in me has saved you. Now we know something more about this woman without really knowing any detail that somewhere before this night she had encountered Jesus. And the message of grace and of a Savior who would forgive the people's sins. Forgiveness had been extended to her by grace and she had received it by faith. Her heart was changed. And then she did the only thing she could do. The thing that now consumes her. She has to find a way to show Jesus that she loves him. 
But how could she do that? When, when would it be possible? There's always so many people around. Where could I show him my love? And she heard about an invitation at a Pharisee's house. Simon actually wrote the invitation. But God ordained the invitation. And she took advantage of it. At this meal. At this party. That we will never forget. Well that's the Pharisee. And the sinner. And the Savior. You got it? Have your sins been forgiven? When's the last time that truth caused you to weep? My Jesus, I love you. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Jesus has done all that can be done to save you. And when he saves you, you'll do all that you can do to love him. And if you haven't, or if you aren't even now compelled to, then you might not be saved. Father, help us to love you and love you more by acknowledging our sin and the incredible mercy that you have showered on us. There's one character in this story that we should identify with, and it's that sinner. But God, if there's a pharisaical heart in this room, and there is, all of us at times are inclined so, may this text rebuke us and correct us and drive us to admit ourselves a sinner. And thank you, Father, for showing us our Savior. It's in His perfect work that we rejoice and have today sung and prayed and praised and been drawn together around that beautiful table. Send us now from from this time together with hearts bent toward love. We know enough about Jesus, perhaps. The question is, do we know him? Do we love him? Have your work, Father, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to pastor and Bible teacher Steve Wilson of Grace Community Church in Bowling Green, Kentucky. We trust you've been encouraged and challenged by this message. If you would like to listen to more of Pastor Wilson's messages or obtain more information on the ministry of Grace Community Church, you can go to our website at gccbg.com. That's gccbg.com. 